Craig Johnson is a Wyoming rancher and a best-selling international author who writes westerns for people who may not normally read westerns. The fabulously popular Walt Longmire mystery series that's also been turned into a top-rating six-season Netflix show of the same name. The books and the show closely reflect the community and the landscape that Craig calls home. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and in today's show, Craig talks about the work of creating a country sheriff who's a thoroughly decent man, the magic draw of the annual Longmire Days in nearby Buffalo, and how he's rereading Ernest Hemingway at the moment for a very special purpose. We've got three digital copies, ebooks, of Next to Last Stand, the latest Longmire book as we speak, for three lucky readers in our Western giveaway. Don't miss out, enter today for a chance to win. And before we get to Craig, also, just a reminder. You can support the show on Patreon for as little as a cup of coffee a month and get bonus content including five quickfire getting to know your questions with your favourite authors including Craig. But now here's Craig. Hello there Craig and welcome to the show. It's so good to have you with us. Well, it's wonderful to be here. And thank you for getting up so early and uh, making this so convenient for me to be in the middle of the afternoon. (laughs) That's wonderful. Look, you've got 15 books, a six-season Netflix series. This fellow Longmire, he's developed a life of his own, hasn't he? Now, we're talking about the most recent book today, Next to Last Stand. But Walt Longmire's life is very much your life, isn't it? And I'd like our listeners to get an idea of where you are and how you're living, because it does parallel Walt's life very closely. (laughs) You've written a series about a Wyoming sheriff and you're a Wyoming rancher. So give us a picture of of where you are and how your day unfolds. Well, there are some similarities like that, but I mean, there are also some differences also. Like, I mean, Walt is a a full-time sheriff. That's a full-time job. As I was talking about before, it's actually an elected uh, law enforcement job. I mean, the sheriffs are actually county law enforcers that have to go out like politicians and get votes. And so Walt not only is a police officer, he's also a politician. And so the reason I chose that particular line of work was that it kind of made him immediately answerable to the community. And that's really what a lot of the books are about, or about the community. It's a very thin veneer of civilization here in Wyoming, like at the ranch where I live that I built myself. I I built my ranch. The nearest town to us is a population of 25. So there really aren't very many people like that. So whenever Judy, my wife, and I go out on tour, there are only 23 people in Ucross. And so it'd be a great time to come in and rob the place. We're, We're actually in Johnson County. Um, which is not named for me. I want to be clear about that. But yeah, it's an isolated kind of lifestyle, I suppose. But I find that to be very conducive to the writing process. For me, 
I, I always hear about it whenever I'm around a bunch of other authors and they're talking about writing at Starbucks or at the coffee shops or meeting with other writers and getting together and having dinner and doing those type of things. I don't have that particular luxury. I go up into my loft here at the ranch, like that, after I get all of the ranching chores done, and then start in with Walt, like that. I think that's, I guess, what I need. I guess I need that kind of solitude to focus on what it is that I want to focus on. Other major differences that Walt and I have are that Walt has had a lot of tragedies in his life. The biggest one, of course, being the death of his wife. And that's kind of had a long term effect on him. I've had a really pretty wonderfully charmed existence. My very first book that I wrote, The Cold Dish, the very first Walt Longmire book, was picked up by Viking Penguin, big publisher back in New York. They took it and ran with it. We got on the New York Times bestsellers list. Warner Brothers came knocking and said, hey, we'd like to make a TV show out of uh, the series of books, which I highly questioned because making a TV show out of the sheriff of the least populated county in the least populated state in America. I don't know. I didn't, I wasn't so sure that would work, but evidently it did like that. We're still on Netflix streaming and we're one of the, I guess the top 20 original content television shows, even three years or four years after they cease production of Longmire. So I, I really don't have a lot to complain about. My life is, is pretty charmed. Walt has had a difficult or a more difficult road to hoe. And uh, I think that makes our lives a little bit different. Sure. So were you born in Wyoming? No, no. I was actually born in the eastern portion of the United States like that. But I had family in the West. And, uh, and so my eyes were always pointed West like that. And I, I wanted to be here. I wanted to build my own ranch, which I did. I had one of those fathers who considered you to be slave labor until you were 21 and escaped. And so uh, against my will, I learned a lot about electricity and, and plumbing and general construction, masonry and all those type of things. And so the ranch that you're seeing only a very small portion of here like that, I actually built myself. That was probably good too, because that had an effect on me. Um, whenever you know I was you know a young man and thinking about what it was I wanted to do with my life and where I wanted to be and where I wanted to go, I traveled a lot. And maybe it's a massive rationalization for an ill-spent youth, but I think what it actually was my attempts to try and uh, garner as many experiences as I could to bring to the writing. Because I think some of the most boring writers I've ever read are, you know, the ones that go to these marvelous writing schools, but really don't have any kind of life experience to draw from. And for me, I was out there trying to get as much life experience as I could pack into about a 10-year period. And so the problem became that it kind of got to be habit forming that every year or so, I would just root up, take everything that I had, load it into my pickup truck and move to another portion of the United States and get another job and, and live another life for another year. And so finally, whenever I settled down with my wife, Judy, like that, and I finally built the ranch, that kind of settled me. That kind of settled me in. It also anchored me to the point where I thought, okay, maybe now's the time to sit down and try and write that first book. And that first book was, you know, was The Cold Dish, the first Walt Longmire novel. Did you always know you were going to be a writer someday? <laughs> I don't know. I, I always laugh at that question because wanting to be a writer is kind of like wanting to be an astronaut. 
the odds against you are so great. You should just shut up and not tell anybody. Just keep it to yourself. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. So that's kind of what I did. And every once in a while, it slipped. Somebody would say, what are you doing on that computer for like four or five hours in the evenings? Like, and I'd be like, well, I'm writing a book. And they'd be like, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> There's, you know, the, the chances are, the odds are against you are so great. You re- it's really kind of a, a lonesome pursuit to try and do it. And so I just decided to keep it all to myself and be quiet about it. But but yeah, I, I always wanted to. I always wanted to be a writer like that, but I, I didn't know if it would work out or not. I mean, the first thing is always trying to find something and somebody to write about. It seemed like that at the point in time when I was thinking about doing the Walt books, that everything was very noir uh, here in the U.S., as far as mystery novels and thriller novels and everything were concerned, everything was very urban, very big city. It seemed like every novel took place in either Los Angeles or New York or Chicago or Miami or places like that. I looked at the map of the United States and it just seemed like there was an awful lot out there that were these blank open spaces like that. And I thought, okay, well, just because it's not happening in an alley behind the Waldorf Astoria doesn't mean that it's not a true crime, like that that is, is taking a life, you know, a murder mystery, that type of thing. And so I thought, okay, that would be a different direction to go in. And for me, that was important. And then Walt himself being a little bit different from the usual protagonist, who is the divorced alcoholic detective who's got a 27 caseload of, you know, 27 murders he's working on and has difficulty working with his fellow workers. I thought, you know, and I thought maybe Walt can be something different. And, uh, and I think that that's one of the, the compelling qualities of the series and of the books themselves is, is Walt's character himself. And one of the major differences is that Walt's not perfect in any way, shape, or form, but he does have a decent quality to him. He's a good guy. He's not going to be making meth in a bathtub. He's not going to be burying evidence behind his house or anything. He's, he's an honest and decent individual. And I think that kind of resonates with a lot of people, because an awful lot of the people that are involved in law enforcement are very hardworking, decent people that are working against really terrible, terrible odds and terrible situations and terrible environs like that to try and, and, and deal with people that at one point are at their absolute best, but then also a lot of times are at their absolute worst. And yeah. so you really kind of have to work hard to hold on to your, your belief um, in humanity. Yes. And uh, I think that I think that Walt's done that. I think that he, he really... He has a very strong belief, you know, in humanity and the people around him and the community, how important community is. That, I think, reflects itself in that in his being a sheriff. Yes. What was the state? I'm interested you saying about crime being very urban when you started because... There there can be sometimes a bit of a anti-feeling about Westerns, like they've had their day, and you very much, there is a bit of a resurgence in modern Westerns, even in recent times, but I think you perhaps even led that wave, because things like that show Yellowstone on Netflix now, and, and a number of others are coming through as being very popular, and yet amongst publishers, you will sometimes find this prejudice against Westerners, Westerns. Well, I think that it's kind of funny like that, because they practically got Westerns going before there weren't everybody saying the Westerns are dead. And so the call for Westerns to be dead for such a very, very long time like that is is almost ludicrous like that. I mean, it's just another genre form like that. And whenever you've got a universality to a genre, it's very hard to kill like that. And there's a lot of morality. There's a very stark kind of landscape, I think, which lends itself to that morality as far as Westerns are concerned. And I think that the big thing is, is this, you you have to find a, a kind of a new twist. You have to find a new way of doing things. I've you know, spoken at the uh, the Western Writers of America 
conferences before like that. And I'm always telling an awful lot of the folks that are out in the audience that, hey, it's really hard to make a living copying Louis L'Amour and Zane Gray because Louis L'Amour and Zane Gray were really good at writing Louis L'Amour and Zane Gray. So (laughs) maybe the idea is to maybe try and do something a little bit different. And I think with, with my books being contemporary Westerns, obviously Walt has a problem with technology. He doesn't carry a cell phone. He's driving a 25 year old vehicle like that. He's kind of broken in, but not broken down. I guess is the way I like to look at it. But technology doesn't lend itself very easily in a lot of these Western landscapes. I mean, I'm always laughing about it because people will ask me, they'll say, well, why doesn't Walt carry a cell phone? And I always look at them and go, you've never been to Wyoming, have you? Because I would imagine it's it's a lot like New Zealand or a lot of other places like that, where there are large swaths, areas that if you don't have service, that, that little phone in your hand is really not much good. It's great for taking photographs of selfies of you and pronghorn antelope. But other than that, it really is kind of useless. And so nature takes a hand like that. And I think that in Westerns, that Western landscape is, it embodies itself very strongly as a character and creates an environment that makes for something maybe a little bit different to where you don't have computer access and cell phone activity and the internet and all of these things like that that can kind of enhance life or make things a little bit easier or of course also make things a little bit more difficult he says as he's doing this wonderful interview with this lovely woman from New Zealand like so <laughs> it's one of those things where it can be a blessing or a curse like that but you just have to find a way to to utilize it as best you can yeah yeah now getting back to next to last stand, it focuses on a very famous painting that was taken up by the beer company Budweiser, and I gather as seen in bars, well, years ago anyway, maybe not quite so much today, was seen. Oh, yeah. No, it's I can name you five bars within like an hour from my ranch that have it up yeah, on their walls. amazing. Relating to the defeat of General Custer. Now, I think everybody in the world at least knows the phrase Custer's last stand, but they probably don't know much about what actually went on there. But so this book is focused around that painting and its history and what happened to it. The battle was in Montana in 1876. Tell us about the painting. Well, to, to put it in perspective, the battlefield is only about an hour and a half away right across the border up in Montana, where my ranch is. I'm right there on the Wyoming-Montana border and uh, at the base of the Bighorn Mountains. Like, And so the Little Bighorn is only like about an hour and a half north is where it is. Maybe an hour and 15 minutes might not even be that much. And so it's a major piece of, of American history that is right here in my backyard. And so when you're writing about a place that's similar, Durant and Absaroka County are fictitious, but it's basically, it's Johnson County and it's Buffalo. Whenever you're writing about something like that, well, there's always that 600-pound gorilla in the room. Whenever you've got that piece of history that's right there, that you're going to write about it at some point in time like that. And one of the things I like to do is I like to bring across a lot of social history, a lot of historical relevance like that and bring it back into perspective for what we have nowadays. And so there it was, the bighorn, little bighorn right up the road from me, my 600 pound gorilla in the room like that. And I thought to myself, okay, well, if you're going to write about it though, you're going to have to find a different angle to kind of attack, forgive the term, like that particular battle because so much has been 
and written about it. So many books, so many movies, a lot of bad movies that actually gets talked about, gets touched upon actually in the book, like that, the television shows and so much has been written and done about the Little Bighorn that I thought, okay, I, I don't want to jump in here and do what everybody's done before. I'm going to have to try and do something a little bit different. So you have, as a writer, you always have that, that point of entree. Where exactly are you going to attack this idea? And I remember seeing that that painting, as I said, I know where five of them are within an hour of where my ranch is, over in Gillette, over in Sheridan, or down in Buffalo, like that. I mean, all around, like that there, it's hanging there on the wall, like that. And I thought to myself, I thought, I wonder what the history of that that particular painting is. And so when I started doing the research, like I discovered that, that there had been essays written about it, that there were all of these, these things. And the history of that painting was almost as dramatic as the battle itself. The fact that it had gone on tour all over the country, that there was a lot of controversy about the painting, because just because we're talking about this painting and it's very historic does not mean that it was a really good painting. Cassili Adams was, he was not a great painter. He was a good painter like that. And uh, this particular painting was massive. It was like 16 feet by eight feet and he painted it there in St. Louis, and it had gone on tour all over the country because I, I had discovered this was something I didn't know. But before there were these 24-hour news cycles on cable television, before there was like constant news barraging you from the internet and all this, a lot of people kind of depended on first the newspapers. But second of all, what they would do is they would paint these great big paintings of historical events, and then they would take them around in a wagon and light them and then charge everybody a quarter to go in and look at the painting, you know, and have it all described for them. Well, that was a way of conveying what had happened historically. And so this painting had been all over the country and came back, like at the St. Louis, and they, nobody really wanted it. Nobody wanted to buy it. But then again, there was an individual that owned the saloon at the St. Louis train station. And he thought, you know what, it would be a great conversation starter to have up on the wall in my bar there at the train station and you get people to drink at the, the bar, the saloon, like that, and maybe miss their trains and drink more. And so anyway, like they put this thing up on the wall, this big, huge painting up on the wall, and it stayed up there for something like, I don't know, something like 20 years, for goodness sake. And then as what happens with a lot of these type of institutions, it went out of business, went bankrupt. And one of its biggest creditors at that point in time was a small brewery in uh, St. Louis called Anheuser-Busch or Budweiser. And so Augie Bush, the owner of Budweiser Beer, came down there and said, hey, you owe me how many thousands of dollars for all the beer? And they said, we're bankrupt. We don't have anything to pay you with. And he looks up on the wall and never wanted to miss an opportunity. Augie Bush says, I'll take the painting off the wall. Like, well, they peel the painting off the wall. He rolls it up under his arm. He goes back to the brewery. He rolls it out on a great big table in front of his merchandising and, and marketing guys. I get and says, we're going to make posters of this painting. And we're going to send them out to every restaurant and bar and saloon that, that, that carries Budweiser beer as a gift like that. And by the time we're through, we're through with this particular, you know, cavalcade, we're going to be selling a lot more beer. Well, Budweiser is one of the largest brewers in the world now. And so obviously the trick worked like that. But they did it for like, I can't remember, something like another 20 or 30 years like that. So that in the 30s, what happened was in a fit of uh, philanthropic magnitude like that, uh, uh, Augie Bush decided, you know what, we're going to donate the painting. We've got our 40 and found of it. We're going to we're going to donate it to 7th Cavalry. 
So they gave the painting to the 7th Cavalry, which at that point in time was based in Fort Bliss, Texas, and they put it up on their commissary wall, where it stayed until 1946, when the commissary burned to the ground and the painting was destroyed. Or was it? And the whole point (laughs) being that Walt Longmire, through the veteran's home right here above Duran, discovers a portion of a painting and starts doing the research and discovers that this painting might still exist. And I remember asking the folks over at the Buffalo Bill Museum, I said, well, what would this painting be worth? And Mary Robinson, who's in charge of the the library over there, she said, oh, Craig, you're 20... 2425. And I said, 2425,000. She goes, no, 24,25 million. She said, that <laughs> painting has had such a large scale effect worldwide. And there have been so many copies of it and everybody knows it. It may be the most viewed painting in American history. And she said, yeah, more like $25 million. And I thought, okay, well, there is my MacGuffin. There is, there's something <laughs> that will send Walt Longmire on his very first art heist. Yeah, that's a great story. So tell us, that painting, what is controversial about the way that the artist portrays the outcome of the battle? Um, <laughs> well, everything's wrong. Like, I mean, everything about the painting is uh, is kind of uh, incorrect in many ways. Look like, at the geography of the painting. It looks as though it's been painted. The battle's taking place on the wrong side of the river. The Indian camps are all in the wrong place. I guess Cassili Adams's son said that he had actually had troopers come in with their equipment and he had used them as models to formulate exactly how it was that they were dressed like that. And they get they get away pretty pretty well. Like that. They actually look right. The Indians, on the other hand, look like they came from Rourke's Drift by, by way of like the Seminole Reservation in Florida. Florida. They, they've got headdresses that are all wrong. I've got the shields that they're carrying look like giant tortoise shields uh, from Africa. And then once you finally get all the way down to, to Custer himself, his hair was not long on that battle. He had cut it off the night before. The scarf that he's wearing is all wrong. He's carrying a saber, which the 7th Cavalry as an expeditionary force did not carry at that point in time. There are just a lot of inaccuracies as far as the painting is concerned. But hey, that's just artistic license, I think. Whenever Cassie Adams was attempting to, 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 you know, formulate this painting. He might have taken a few liberties like that. And uh, actually, he took a lot of liberties like that. But uh, it, it, it makes for a very dramatic painting, which is interesting, too, like that, because it's very gruesome. I mean, there's actual scalpings going on and, and knivings and shootings and all of these really terrible things like that. And I guess by the time it got into the 40s, they actually you know, painted some of those out. They actually blocked some of them out in the painting so that they wouldn't show up and the painting wouldn't be quite so gruesome. So when you're sitting there cutting into your steak, you weren't looking up and seeing somebody having half their head cut off. Like that. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, so, yeah. you know, these things evolve. <laughs> the thing I love about the Longmire series generally, I, I love Henry Standing Bear and I love the way that the Native American viewpoint is portrayed in lots of ways. I mean, obviously he's got a big number of... Um, Native Americans amongst his constituents. The reservation is quite close. Did you start out with the intention of portraying that part of Wyoming life, and or has it grown as the years have gone by? No, that was an intention from the get-go. I mean, the Northern Cheyenne and the Crow Reservation are just to the north of where I live. There's such an amazing people like that, that there's, there wasn't possible for me to leave them out. It would be criminal, excuse the term, but for me to not have them be a part of the world you know, that I live in. And so I had to include them in, in the world that Walt lives in. 
And yeah, I'm guilty as much as any other author. There's that wonderful quote by Wallace Stegner where he says that the greatest piece of fiction ever written is the disclaimer at the beginning of every book that says nobody in this book is based off anybody alive or dead. And what a crock that is, like that, because everybody does that. That's what you do. You take people and you put them in your books. Okay, well, that's difficult when you live in a state that only has 500,000 people in it, because once I stick somebody from Wyoming in my books, everybody knows who I'm talking about. Well, it's even worse up on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation that only has 20,000 enrolled members, because if I stick one of my friends from up there in the books, everybody in the whole reservation knows who, who it is that I'm, I'm, I'm putting in. And that was kind of a little bit of a, I guess, a liberty in the first book, The Cold Dish, like that. But fortunately, the books and the television show got a really marvelous response from the, the members of both the Northern Cheyenne and the Crow reservations, like that, and tribes, like that. And uh, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, A, number one, I, I had to include them in my books or it wouldn't be an accurate portrayal of where it is that I live. But then the other parts is that they're not just set dressing in my books. They're people in my books like that. And to to, to, disregard them, you know, and their humanity in any way would be, you know, a horrible thing for me to do. And so I have to include them and I have to include them in every, every facet of their humanity. It's kind of important as far as that's concerned. And that's been from the get go all the way, you know, 15 books ago. The one that I've got coming out in the fall on the 21st is called The Daughter of the Morning Star, which is about a phenom basketball player on the girls' Northern Cheyenne team who starts receiving these death threats. And uh, she's got a sister who went missing almost a year ago, which kind of conveys one of the really horrible issues that we're facing in Indian country is the abduction and murder um, of Indian women like that. And that's really very close to home. And that, I think, has to be included in the books. You need to to deal with social issues. I I don't ever have Walt chasing al-Qaeda over in Crook County. I want him dealing with the things that Wyoming and Montana uh, sheriffs have to deal with. Yeah, And I noticed there's a strong sense of spirituality in the books as well. And Walt tunes into that. I noticed in one of them, Land of Wolves, he's led by his spirit guide, Virgil White White Buffalo. Is that something that you also have a sensitivity to yourself? Yeah, I think I do. Like that, I, I don't think that you can live in this part of the world under the influence of the Northern Cheyenne and the Crow and not be affected by the way that they see the world. My good friend Marcus Red Thunder, like that, who's kind of the model for Henry in the books, like that, is a very spiritual individual, like that. And I'm consistently amazed at what the way that he sees the world and what he sees in it. And it's kind of important for me to include that in the books. And that's just just the local aspect of it, too. I mean, historically, you can go all the way back to Shakespeare, that in Hamlet, there are far greater things, Horatio, than are dreamt of in thy philosophies. And I'm firmly of the belief that when you go to write a novel, it needs to be written on a number of different levels. And I think that to completely ignore and neglect that spirituality and that mysticism that's such a part of where it is that I live, that would be, they would once again, it would leave a void, I think, for the reader. They would know that there was something that was being left out. And I, I can't do that. You relate to your readers on in a very down-to-earth way. And I, w- I did enroll in your newsletter. So I've got the most recent one. And I was really tickled because you gave us quite an explanation about this work that you were doing in your barn, which turned out to be all, practically a work of art in itself. And oh. I thought to myself, I bet that your readers love that about you, that you relate to them in a very real way. Would you think that's one of your strengths? Well, I, I don't know if it's a strength or a weakness, but I don't know any other way to do yeah. it. 
Yeah. <laughs> for me, it's kind of a two-way street. I mean, it's, it's kind of nice like that because whenever somebody's going to go out and they're going to buy your book year after year after year, that's, a, that's like a $30 contract that you have with that person. And you really have certain responsibilities that go along with that in the sense that it's got to be a good book. It's got to be a good story. It's got to have character development. It's got to have social impact. It's got to have humor. It's got to have history. It's got to have all of those things that they've grown to love about your book. That kind of raises the bar a little bit and makes it a little bit of a challenge like that. And I'm really accessible. I don't know any other way to do it. In my website, you can go to craigallenjohnson.com and you can hit the contact button. Well, that's my email here at the ranch. And I always laugh about it because I'll get emails from people that say, whoever it is responsible for answering Mr. Johnson's emails. And I'm always sitting here at the ranch looking at the computer and going, well, that would be me. So <laughs> there have been times where they've actually quizzed me to see if it actually is me like that because they don't believe it. To me, I think you're as an author. Yeah, you're taking a chance like that because there might be people out there that don't like your books or don't like your characters or anything like that. But I've found that that's a very small percentage. I mean, the majority, the vast majority, I'd say a good enough. 97, 98% of the emails that I get or the interaction that I have with people on Facebook, you know, or Instagram or all the other social media is extraordinarily positive like that. And, you know, and I like answering those questions. I think you can go overboard on anything like that. So I'm always careful. But whenever I get up in the morning, I... I answer all the emails like that. I'll go on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and I'll put something up like that. And then if there are some specific questions people are asking me, I'll try and answer those questions and everything. And then I go out and do my ranching work like, and then come in and go up and start working on the books. Like that. I think hanging around on social media can be a detriment because it, it, it steals away the time that you should be you know, working on your novel like that. Yeah. And so... I'm always accessible like that, and I'm always trying to be on there like that, but I, I think you kind of have to keep it to a limit as far as yes. that's concerned. And you do open your ranch to your Longmire days, which I, I must admit I started following you last year, and I and I saw with interest how the year went by, and you were still hoping and still hoping you were going to have your Longmire days, but in the end you had to face reality and cancelled last year, didn't you? But you are very much hoping to have the Longmire days this year. Tell us about it. Well, it's one of those things where the little town of Buffalo, like the, the, they came to me and they said, we'd like to try and do a Longmire Day. We did it. And I, all it was me sitting in front of the Busy Bee Cafe signing books under an, uh, an umbrella. And But it was strange, though, because like a couple of hundred people showed up. And so that's really kind of wonderful. And so the Office of Tourism before the state of Wyoming, they were there and filming. And they said, well, do you think you could get some of the actors from the television show to show up? And I said, well, I don't know. I can ask and see. Like, how many were you thinking? And they said, all of them. And I was like, oh, well, I can try. Like, but I can't make any guarantees. And as a matter of fact, the majority of them did show up the next year like that. And we were kind of surprised by the response where we had over 15,000 people show up in a little town of 4,000 people or 5,000 people. Like that. And so um, we were kind of overwhelmed, I think, like at the town of Buffalo, where, you know, the restaurants ran out of food, the grocery stores ran out of food. The ATM machines, the banks ran out of money. They overloaded all the cell phones, overloaded the one little tower that we had there in Buffalo so that it went down and nobody could make any cell phones. And everybody's wandering around with their cell phones trying to get service. And I'm looking at them and going, Yeah, why doesn't Walt Longmire have a cell phone? Or you get the clear ID. And it was a really kind of wonderful success. And we've been doing it now for about 10 years. 
Yeah, last year was a little bit tough like that with COVID. And we finally had to do it virtually, but we had a really wonderful response. It was kind of amazing. I got to see the response um, that people had. And it was kind of fantastic. Like, and yeah, we're of hopes. We've got great hopes like that we're going to be able to do it again live this year like that. But the difficulty that we're running into is that a lot of the actors are doing a lot of their work in foreign countries. I mean, obviously, Robert's living in Australia. He has a, uh, a quarantine that he has to go through every time that he you know, goes somewhere and flies somewhere to do a movie. I think Bailey Chase was just up in Vancouver. A lot of the actors have been in a lot of different places. And the difficulty is that they have to go into, into quarantine when they come back. Okay, well, sometimes those quarantines are, are sometimes two and four weeks long. Like, mm-hmm. well, that's a big mm-hmm. chunk yeah. out of their time. Like, yeah. And so yeah. it's going to be tough like, to do Longmire Days this year. We've got great hopes and we've sold an awful lot of tickets and a lot of people are really prepared to come to Buffalo and uh, we have great hopes and we, we hope that'll pan out. Yeah. Look, we are starting to run out of time. So we ju- I just would like to talk to you about your own reading, turning to Craig as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading. And I like it to be the sort of show that introduces authors that people might not have heard of but will love. As I say, find a book they won't want to put down. So your own reading, tell us about who you like to read and who you'd like to recommend to listeners. There's a number. There's always a number of readings that I'm doing. A lot of times what I'm doing is since I've gotten to a certain point in my career is I'm doing a lot of blurbs, which is kind of interesting like that. But one is I just finished a little book called by Taylor Adams called Hairpin Bridge, which is out now like that, which is a very marvelous um, thriller that takes place in Western Montana. S.A. Cosby, uh, a good friend of mine out of Virginia, he's got a book that's coming uh, out called Razorblade Tears. And uh, the list just goes on and on and on. Uh, Ann Hellerman, my good friend Ann Hellerman just had a book come out, um, which I know she's been on your show like that. And uh, she does such a marvelous job of taking the characters in the world that were her father's, Tony's, like and kind of making it her own and striking out and on her own path, which is really kind of wonderful. Yeah, she was remarkable. Um, That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to, to try and step in those shoes and take off and do something on your own, which I think she's done a miraculous job of. And then, of course, there are always writers that I'm going to go back to. I'm doing the, believe it or not, like that I got tagged to do the uh, keynote speech for the International Hemingway Association meeting next year. And so I'm reading a lot of Hemingway like that, that I hadn't read, you know, I mean, in a number of years like that. It's always fun to go back to writers that you, know, you might have read in an earlier period in your life. And I'm always reminded of that great quote from Mark Twain, where he talked about his father. When he remembered his father when he was a teenager, he couldn't believe how stupid the old man was. And then once he got into his 30s, he couldn't believe how smart he'd become. So (laughs) it's always interesting to see what kind of an effect these authors have on you as you become something different. And and I not only have changed from authors that I read when I was reading Hemingway in my 20s to a man in my 60s now, it's a little bit different how I approach his work. um, And then I just pulled out another one, George MacDonald Frazier's The McCall trilogy. He's a wonderful Scottish writer who is probably more famous for the Flashman series that he did, which is a marvelous English history of this, the most scoundrelish 
caddish, you know, protagonist you could ever possibly hope for. But these books are more about his time in North Africa and in Burma in the British military. And they're some of the funniest stories, short stories I've ever read in my entire life. I, I really, really love funny authors, authors that have a sense of humor. I, I try to put as much humor in my books as I possibly can, simply because I think it it makes the characters more real. And whenever whenever I'm talking to young authors who are asking me, you know, well, how do you make characters are endearing to readers? I'm like, give them a sense of humor. And inevitably, the next thing out of their mouth is, yeah, well, what if I'm not funny? And then I have to look at them and say, well, then you've really, you're in a lot of trouble then, to be honest with you. Like, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot, of, a lot of literature out there that doesn't have any humor in it. But I think that whenever you're writing crime fiction and dealing with police officers and law enforcement, one of the things I hear over and over again from a lot of law enforcement folks is it's the humor that they really enjoy in the books. Like just yeah. simply because that's going to be more important than a bulletproof vest. If you can keep mm-hmm. your sense of humor at the end of the day, you, you've got a chance of making it through. Now tell me, with the Hemingway speech, at this stage, do you think you are going to take the tack of how differently you view him today from when you were 20 or? No, I think probably what I'm going to probably talk about is isolation. I think there's an isolation aspect to Hemingway's work, an isolation with the world, an isolation with other people, an isolation within yourself. And since the Hemingway Association meet was kind enough to not do their meeting this year in Havana, uh, although I would have enjoyed going to Havana, I have to admit, like that they're actually doing it here in Wyoming. And so, you know, it's very easily, it's easy to talk about isolation in Wyoming. My wife has, you know, a really wonderful quote about Wyoming in that Wyoming is a great place to get away from everything, except you're you're always going to be waiting for yourself there like that. And so hopefully we're going to be having a reading. Robert Taylor is actually going to be reading the uh, short story, The Wine of Wyoming. And a lot of what it has to say and talk about is that isolation and how it is that we as human beings deal with that. And I think that was a lot, for better or worse, that Hemingway had to say. When is this? When is it going to happen? If, if you've got oh, a yeah, it's actually right. I think it's like about the third week, I think, in July um, of 2022. And then yeah. I think, and then we'll see what happens. I'm lobbying to try and get Longmire days uh, around that same period, like it, so that Robert does not fly, have to fly back and forth across the Pacific Ocean at every time. And then I'm actually, there's a possibility I may be speaking to a, a, a 5,000 person group of FBI agents down in Denver, like that. So we'll see what happens. It's going to be a busy two week period, is what all I can say. Fantastic. So just very quickly wrapping up, what is next for Craig, the writer? I mean, we've got a good idea already, some of the activities you're going to be taking part in, but what does your next 12 months look like apart from what you've just mentioned to us? Well, it seems like things have kind of opened up a little bit. Like, and so I'm getting an awful lot of invitations from a lot of bookstores, a lot of libraries, a lot of literary festivals. The French just uh, invited me back over like, at, you know, for another European tour, which if I ever turn one of those down, I'm going to be a divorced man in Ucross, Wyoming, because my wife really <laughs> enjoys those trips to Paris. Like, I probably got that coming up. Probably we'll see a, a tour of sorts for uh, Daughter of the Morning Star like that in September and then probably be over in Europe in October. And then, yeah, the rest of the year is kind of filling up pretty quick with a lot of other, uh, a lot of, a lot of other in-person opportunities. And as long as we can keep this COVID thing at bay 
I do advise everybody to go out and get your inoculations. I got mine months ago, and it just it's a it takes a little bit of the the wear and tear um, off the worry like that. And it's always good to to be able to take a small sacrifice for your 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 fellow uh, human beings across the globe. Like that seems yeah. to be an important thing to do. That's wonderful. Now you've already made it very clear that you're accessible to your readers. We'll make sure that all the links for those connections are in the show notes for this episode. So we have gone over time, but you're just irresistible to talk to. Thank you so much, Craig. (laughs) You were very, very kind. And I should explain that I told her at the very beginning of the interview that I had to run into town to get chainsaw blades like that so I could keep cutting firewood tomorrow morning. Like <laughs> she was kind enough <laughs> to keep us on, on track here. So thank you very much, dear. I appreciate it. This that. is what I mean about the authentic male. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they think I'm out there with an axe like that, but the chainsaw, when you need about 14 or 16 cords, <laughs> that chainsaw gets it's a little bit faster. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Craig. It's wonderful. Thank you, dear. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Finch Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.